The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy. I'm with uh, Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to be here. Thanks for joining us. And here with certified financial planner and profe- certified financial planner professional, retirement income certified professional, David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. It's like a pit crew here when I'm trying to take over, <laughs> take over the microphone, etc. If people could watch how quickly we have to transition to do that, but. Uh, all good here. You can call in with your questions to 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results, and you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. So got that out of the way. Uh, I do want to have a special announcement, uh, uh, run rather quickly, but we want to thank everyone who voted for Rudy Wealth Management and the News Gazette's People's Choice Awards. We're proud to be voted number one in the investment firm category. David, I'm not sure that you helped that at all. You know, <laughs> I think it's all me. I think it's maybe it's Dr. Fred, who's not with us. He's not with Rudy Wealth, but uh, just his support on the show certainly probably is uh, part of that success. Uh, we're thrilled to have the support of the community in doing what we do every day especially and including sharing the knowledge uh, we try to share every couple of weeks and have done since 1990. Uh, we plan to uh, certainly uh, plan to continue to do so. Uh, if WDWS is so kind, we'll continue doing this for the surrounding communities. Well, yeah, guys, one go ahead. quick point. Yes, I think uh, uh, independent investment, investment advisors is an area that actually is growing. Uh, most things in the economy are centralizing into big operations, but uh, Investments a little bit different, I think, nowadays. I think so. I mean, there's a real trend, uh, Fred, for people leaving the brokerage side of the business and moving into the fee-only side, as we've been. Right. I've been really per- pretty much most of my career on the fee-only side. That's certainly a big trend. And, of course, with stock market, stock market hitting all new highs, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, yesterday and the day before and so far so good today. And this is supposedly the longest bull market in uh, U.S. history. I don't know what to make of that. Right. It's, it's not one of the strongest, that's for sure. Uh, right. there's, there's been a number that have been quite a bit stronger. but Yeah, the 90s, I think, was uh, somewhat stronger. But again, uh, you don't want to argue with. No, and, and, and if you, know, you kind of have to throw out the 1987 one-day crash right. to really throw in a bear market between 1982 and 2000. So, I, you know, I, I guess technically this is the longest yeah. bull market. And everything, I'm yeah. not sure it is. I would count 82 through And all 2000. the definitions are arbitrary. Whether, whether completely arbitrary. 20% or 22%. Or right. I, so, and then I always kind of back up and think, well, aren't we really in a permanent bull market really since the beginning of, you know, capitalism in the United States? It's really been a permanent uptrend uh, with lots of sheer terror and chaos in between from time to time. Uh, but last Wednesday it turned, if you can imagine, who could have ima- actually... Who could have imagined in 2008 or 2009, in March of 2009, when the stock market bottomed, mm-hmm. that we'd say, you know, over the next 10 years, we'll probably have the longest bull market in U.S. history. And uh, a tripling of stock prices from the lows. Uh, and uh, you just wouldn't have imagined it. 
but one of the things that's interesting is the benchmark interest rate that keys off mortgages really has it. So we've had the stock market triple since uh, March, April 9th of 2009 when the stock market bottomed. But I noticed that the 10-year treasury, I think yesterday, was around 2.85%. But in at, on the bottom in 2009, the 10-year treasury was 2.85%. I'm, I'm yeah. rounding. There's a little bit of rounding. So I, I think, uh, again, uh, you never want to say anything uh, about the future with uh, trepidation, but it, it appears that uh, inflation now is under control for uh, several decades, which is an unusual situation in most any country. I had a, a prospective client ask me yesterday, and, and, and David, you were in that meeting, and his first question is, uh, what do you think inflation is going to do over the next 10 or 15 years? And I said, well, the only, the only sane answer is I don't know. Which, no. you know no, and I was comforted by the fact, and I told the, the couple that I was comforted by the fact that nobody else knows either, that inflation, like at most everything, is a distribution of potential outcomes. So I gave him some historical perspective and said, well, over this person's uh, eight-decade life, I said inflation's run somewhere close to 3%. I think that's fair. I said in the last 10 years, it's probably been sub 2%, but over the last 50 years, it's probably been around 4%. So again, it's a, it's a distribution of outcomes, but these things are just unknown. But you have the, the market telling you something too about the future. That- right, and that's when you refer to, when you look at the treasury inflation protected securities yeah. versus the straight treasury security, uh, the spreads there between those two are basically what they call at the bond markets right. implied inflation expectation. Right. Uh, doesn't mean it has to be right, does it? It just no, means never, that's just what never, it is. It's just what people expect at this point. And but, people that are the most sensitive probably do inflation. But it may obviously they may be wrong too. So and and you know obviously and and right now inflation's kind of uh, you know hovering around the Fed's target area of two percent. Um, why two percent, Fred? I, I mean, not that you know necessarily the exact reason, but just give us a theoretical reason why. Why well, I think there are uh, some. Uh, technical reasons and also some more general reasons. Uh, the technical reasons uh, relate to things that, that uh, having to do with the inflation measure. And, and uh, many people, many economists believe that uh, we overestimate inflation because we don't take into account improvement in quality, ability of people to readjust their spending, things of that sort. And I know that uh, most of our callers will say that, that can't be true because Everyone believes the prices are always going up, but if you take into account uh, things like quality changes, it's probably overestimates it. For example, uh, most of us probably pay more now for our telephone than we did 20 years ago, but our telephone does uh, 50 things that our telephone in the past uh, did not do, so it's hard to incorporate those kind of changes in the the measure. Uh, I noticed that in TVs. Um, Rudy Wealth has opened a, a second office in uh, near Dallas, Texas, in Plano, Texas. And so my wife and I, we rented, we leased an apartment right near the office building in a very nice area. Right. So of course, naturally, I have to get a TV. But w- when I think of how many hours 10 or 20 years ago, one would have to work to buy a suboptimal, I mean, a TV right. today that you would throw away yeah. uh, might have been a hundred hours or a couple of hundred hours or more. I haven't really thought about it. I've seen, I've seen kind of articles written about that. And now maybe it takes two right. or three or five hours, depending on what you earned by a TV that's massively improved. Well, yeah, I can go back even, uh, even further in time. Uh, I think my first TV was in 1953 and we probably paid $300 in, in, those days, which is probably equivalent to uh, $3,000 today, and and the TV was, as you say, you wouldn't even uh, look at it now. 
But I remember when we got our first Sony Trinitron TV that my dad won in the 70s. <laughs> Before that, we were about the only holdouts that still had a yeah. black and white TV in the neighborhood. But I guess that's what happens when you raise five boys. Right. Well, good news yesterday on, in the big picture. Uh, it seems like we've made really good, strong progress towards some trade deals, uh, bilateral deal with Mexico. Uh, now Canada wants to come to the table. There's a little more favorable talk maybe between China. Is this a result of, here's what I think is happening, and you can tell me, you know, like my teachers used to tell me how wrong I was all the time. So prior to Trump, and again, this is I'm, I'm staying away from politics, so don't call me wanting to argue about politics. This is not the point I'm making, but I'm just a little more factual. I think factual. Uh, we had higher tariffs, and now we're talking about, you know, it seems like we were subsidizing the world in a way. In other words, if you look at our average tariff pre-Trump versus China, uh, South Korea, Europe, Mexico, etc., um, it would certainly give the appearance that we were subsidizing the world. Then uh, we cut corporate tax rates uh, down to 21%. Prior to that, we were much higher than most of those other countries. Uh, again, putting us kind of in a disadvantage per, uh, per uh, area. We're, we've cut deregulation. Suddenly now, uh, everybody kind of wants, to, seemingly wants to come to the table. We've struck our first right. deal, Canada. Is the fact, and, and kind of along with that, I guess I can't ignore the, the kind of the energy independence theme here where we're now the largest producer of petroleum products. I don't I'm not going to say oil, but petroleum products, and we're a net exporter in some areas. That seems altogether seems to have changed the balance of power in the world where everybody's right. going, hey, we might want to get on board of this because the U.S. now is really showing its strength as an economic power right. now that they're not subsidizing a bunch of the world, trend towards lower taxation, lower regulation, and now everybody's, you know, I mean, look at the sea changes in Saudi Arabia. Women can drive now. and all. I, I don't think that's an accident, the fact that we don't need their oil as much as we used to. Right. So I guess I agree with uh, most of the what you said. Except the one uh, term you used, I don't think we were subsidizing the rest of the world. Uh, trade is not a, as we know, no, it's not a fixed sum game where we lose and they gain. Uh, both sides gain, uh, and uh, we've always gained. So I think the the change is is probably good in the sense that uh, uh, Trump uh, raised uh, both expectations and fears about uh, trade and and. Those are kind of being dispelled now, so I view it more as going back to a, a new normal as opposed to a somewhat better situation where we're going to gain a lot more from other countries and they're going to not gain as much from us. Uh, the, the, the problem that uh, I, th I think the president doesn't understand is that uh, we don't necessarily – uh, Fred, this is a one-hour show. If you're going to go into what Trump doesn't understand. Well, uh, our, our fate is not exporting things to China. Of course. Uh, we're not going to build TV sets here and sell them yeah. in China. Or, Nor should we. Yeah, right. and, and the fact is then that uh, it, there's a whole, whole bunch of issues about uh, maybe uh, the Chinese uh, taking advantage of our uh, technological uh, uh, infrastructure, things of that sort, and, also, and, and those are probably legitimate claims. But I think the trade issue – uh, in, in my mind, I would like it just to recede and not not think about winning or losing. And, just to, and, and maybe that's what's happening. And yeah. maybe the result of this is there any? I just thought of this question: yeah. Is there any good reason, theoretically, to allow one country to have a, a, a much higher tariff on our goods than us on 
their goods. Uh, is there I mean, what? Well, the is only there a good reason for that. Not, I, I, from their standpoint, it's probably a bad idea. Uh, the idea of protecting your industry to uh, promote it is a losing game in the long run. So the country with a high tariff actually is misusing their resources internally, and it's not good for us. It's not good for them. But we can't necessarily change what what other people do. One of the the fallacies is that, well, the way you uh, grow is to protect your industry against foreign competition. And uh, the, the last 30 years have shown that's not true. Uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, China have all gained by uh, uh, trying to make it on the world market, not protect their industries against foreign competition. It, it does think, seem like things are changing. I think the Mexico, I don't, I don't want to overplay that. Yeah. I, frankly, I don't have a perspective a sense of proportionality yeah. of how big of a deal that is, but certainly yeah. Canada is already here. The, yeah. At least uh, people yeah. from the folk trade folks from Canada are here trying to now say, okay, once you get your bilateral agreement ironed out, we want to yeah. go kind yeah, of yeah. There's one uh, kind of big uh, asterisk here, and that is that uh, uh, most democratic countries uh, have trouble dealing with the agricultural sector. Uh, it's subsidized many places and is subsidized for political reasons, not for economic reasons. Yeah, we so that, do we do plenty of that. Yeah, but not, not necessarily through uh, – you know, sugar, obviously, is an example Direct. where we – the uh, United States is probably not uh, well-suited to grow <laughs> sugar, but we, we do. Yeah, it's a politics. Ama- it's amazing. Uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit um, uh, in just a second, but it, it would appear – it seems like uh, from a recessionary standpoint – when I look at the past 10 recessions, there's been 10 recessions since the end of World War II, and it seemed like when I relate it to the stock market, because that's always a part and partial of what is part of our clients' portfolios in the broadest sense. Um, you look at eight of them, uh, bear markets, which are 20% or more decline. Um, so, uh, you know, we're brought on about recession. Right. Uh, two of them weren't, but it certainly seems like there's a somewhat of a direct connection between bear markets and a slowing declining right. economy but the the uh even if you if you take a kind of uh pessimistic out outlook the good news would be that uh a recession probably is going to be an old-fashioned kind of recession where you have a slowing of the economy maybe a tick up of unemployment not a catastrophic kind of thing like 2007 to 2009. So if you remember back in the early 90s and the early 2000s, we had two recessions, but they hardly even uh, had a blip in terms of uh, employment or much of anything. And, of course, Donald Trump said if he's impeached, the stock market will crash 50%. The data doesn't – the historical record certainly doesn't play that that out because I think of uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment uh, impeachment trial in uh, 98. The S&P 500 was up 30% that year, and the next year was up, I think, around 20%. But, of course, when Nixon was impeached – the market fell about 23%. Yeah. But that I, that's my belief that when markets are trending up, they're probably going to continue to trend up. It's probably <clears throat> We probably overplay this, how right. important the president or yeah, administration it's hard to is. Too. I, I, I'm, I was thinking that I'm glad I'm not a – I'm happy not a market timer the last month or so because I wouldn't have uh, <laughs> foreseen what's, what's happened the last several weeks uh, with the market going up really substantially when I thought but, there was uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, negative things uh, in, in the works. Well, I mean, that, and that <clears throat> was one of the things I was going to talk about maybe at the end of this. I think that takes people by surprise. It's not as if there hasn't been a lot of bad news this year. We've had emerging markets, real crises. We've had increasing in interest rates. Uh, we've had a lot of political, legal turmoil. Uh, there's been a lot of bad news just this year, and here we right. are sitting at all-time highs. And I think it's, you know, 
Uh, isn't that because what you've always said, by the time you're sitting around thinking about how this right. is going to impact the market, the market's already moved on and probably have either right. overdone it one way or another. Right. Yeah, I, I, I guess I was surprised, though, about the uh, jump with the uh, uh, trade agreement. I, I thought that that had been sort of incorporated in, that they would switch <coughs> something over, but the market did actually respond to that. Yeah, and I, my view is I, I use a simple capitalization model for what I think the stock market is it you know fairly priced overpriced i don't use it as a tool at all as far as in the backdrop of what we do for clients but i like to have my own personal sense uh particularly when we for since 2008 or 2009 the market's overvalued and going to crash at any mm -hmm. moment and at the end of 2017 even use reflecting higher interest rates i had a stock broad stock market that was probably undervalued by 10 percent, and now earnings have gone up by 10 percent since then right so uh I guess in some ways it doesn't surprise me, though I, I don't sit around forecasting things and I don't talk about it. And if a client would ever ask, what do you think? I might share some feelings that I thought we were in a consolidation phase. Pretty typical. You do this for 35 years, you get a sense. It's not really usable. But you wouldn't tell them to uh, it's not re readjust their it's, um, portfolio. It's not usable. But I just I guess there is that dark side of me that I do have feelings. Yeah. And, 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 and this doesn't surprise me because... Uh, fundamental you know the valuations are reasonable earnings are great uh stock prices can go higher for either valuations can increase about what people will pay for a dollar of earnings and right now they're at a 25 year if you look at forward like what are earnings going to be out of the next 12 months that is tracked every day you know and uh the 25 year average is about 16 and a half times earnings and here we sit at about 16 and a half times earnings so it doesn't screen that stocks are uh, are cheap by any means though i still think they're undervalued uh, but again, I, I think you always are wise yeah. to bring up the point. It's one thing to talk about these things. It's not another thing to act on. Them. Well, the other thing they're, is they're not actionable. But undervalued, overvalued, I think if you really believe the market, uh, the value is what the market says it is. And <laughs> of course it is. And it doesn't care who the president is. It doesn't care who the administration is. But when the economy's still humming along, we haven't. I think the other thing is we haven't really had any economic extremes. No. We've had a lot of economic extremists telling us, you know, right. the, we you know we're going to collapse at any time now for the last eight or nine or ten years. Uh, but it seems to me that the markets are not concerned about you know our things, uh, even though they're far from perfect. It doesn't seem they don't care about is it good or bad. They, it seems like they. When I talk about the markets, yeah. collection of overlapping right. billions of minds is: are things getting better or are they getting worse yeah. economically? And this right? is sort of. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's uh, true or not, but. Uh, President Obama's worst uh, worst nightmare. He thought that he spent eight years getting the economy all set to go, and then he got <laughs> and the Democrats got voted out, and now Trump walks in and <laughs> and, and 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 what's your take on that? I mean, uh, what? You know, no, it's, it's just, one should... no, it's just not not any more true or false compared right. to any other politician. But yeah, so. it's just kind of like bad luck. You yeah. know, it's kind of like darn right. it, I just had this thing ready to go. At least I'm sure that's what Obama thinks, yeah. and it may be true. Well, the same uh, thing could be said for. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton in uh, 1993, he walked into a really great situation. Uh, with, he walked into a massive secular bull market. Which, I with, mean, again, so you could say, well, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush created that, but that's probably not true either. Politics, politics. I, I just, just It doesn't make sense to uh, let your ideologies drive your investment portfolio. Right. That's for sure. I've seen that fail time and time again. Well, David, believe it or not, we're going to start talking to you a little bit uh, <laughs> because you recently wrote a blog and retire about retirement planning rule of thumb that is so often talked about and published 
and written about it, and you wrote an article, why you can't trust, uh, you can't rely on the 4% rule. Uh, what was the motivation behind that? I mean, we see this for, uh, even most prospective clients walking in seem to have some awareness of, of this, I'm a, my ability to potentially spend 4% from my portfolio and increase that by inflation every year. And it's just kind of this rule of thumb. I call it a rule of dumb, but rule of thumb that lingers. Yeah, I think the motivation was honestly, like you said, just the fact that it is so prevalent in the world today. I mean, I just did a quick Google search to see, you know, I, I searched how much can I withdraw from my investment portfolio? And I think probably 99% of the results said, oh, you can basically withdraw 4% from your portfolio. They referenced the 4% rule. And I'll explain kind of okay. probably a little more exactly what that means or how it works. Um, and I think going along with that, the more I've been in the industry, the more I've developed retirement plans for clients, the more I've realized that rule really doesn't work for the vast majority of people. Or I should, more it's than saying not it doesn't work. work, I should say it's probably not necessarily the best option for the majority of people. And I think that that just makes sense because I think really anything in life, but financial planning especially, there is no one size fits all because everyone's situation is different. Everyone has different time horizons, different portfolios, different goals. Um, and all of those things are going to impact how much you can withdraw from your investment portfolio. So I thought it was really important to basically say, you know, write an article that says, here's what the 4% rule is. Here are some of the issues with blindly following it and things to consider when you're actually trying to develop a strategy for how much you're going to withdraw from your investment portfolio in retirement. So uh, why don't you get into what the 4% rule, kind of where this all came from? Yeah, so it originated uh, from research by a guy named uh, William Bangin. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And I think it was like early 90s, like around 1990. 92, I think. And basically, and he was a financial advisor from what I understand. And he basically wanted to test out, okay, how much can I, can my clients safely withdraw from their investment portfolio? I mean, that's a huge issue for retirees. And the way that he went about testing it was he said, okay, well, let's just look at historical data. Let's look at, and he used 30-year periods. And he, you know, there's nothing magical it's about arbitrary. that. He just said, you know, if you look at a 65-year-old couple and we want a conservatively long time horizon, I think 30 years is pretty reasonable. And he tested every 30-year period in the history of the United States stock market, uh, rolling one-year periods. Okay. And basically what he found is that even in the absolute worst 30-year period, you could have withdrawn 4% of your starting portfolio balance, increased it every year for the rate of inflation, and you wouldn't have run out of money. I think it was actually technically 4.15%, and then he rounded right. <laughs> down a little bit right. to give a tiny margin for error. So that's how it originated and came about. So uh, right off the bat, what that tells you is it, it's based on a worst-case scenario. So it's a super conservative assumption. So it would be like building a building as if uh, even in this town, uh, for the worst catastrophic earthquake ever to be held, you know, happen in the United States or maybe in the world, and you think, well, that may not apply to Champaign-Urbana. And so while it's true, it might not be the best design. It, we may be vastly overpaying. And we'll get into that because in, in essence, so part of what the 4% rule does is you do pay, a, you're probably going to pay a huge price for that conservatism. Right. And I think the the first thing I even mentioned is just the the, the big issue is that it's a fixed portfolio withdrawal. 
and you're taking that from a variable investment portfolio. So I think just fundamentally there's something wrong with that, that you're not really adapting to the actual investment results that you're achieving. Yeah, so the earthquake analogy really isn't probably not very, a good one. useful because <laughs> you, can't go, you can't go back and uh, that's true. Re- redo the earthquake. Well, that's true. Uh, uh, I, I guess that was my, you know, not so uh, clever way of saying, you know, it's kind of like being overly conservative. You're, 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 you're living as if uh, two global recessions or depressions in a row are a, a sure thing. And so what are some of the other shortcomings? Right. So I'll actually just go in order. I pulled up my okay. article here because I think I jumped the gun a little bit on a couple things. But the first one, and I, I think the the biggest flaw in this, or it's not even a flaw. Honestly, his research was super valuable. It, it added a lot of like um, understanding to the financial advisory community in terms of how much you can withdraw from an investment portfolio. But like I said, it's based on a 30-year time horizon. Not every retiree has a 30-year time horizon. Right. I may retire at 70. If you retire at 70, maybe you have a 20-year time horizon. Well, that makes a huge difference in how much you can withdraw from your portfolio because even without returns, uh, you know, you could you could for a thirty year period, you can spend a few percent a year with no returns and never worry about running out of principal. <clears throat> you may slide into zero, but over a twenty year period, you know, it's a it's a much larger exactly. So rate. you know, even if you apply the same methodology where you try to figure out the most conservative scenario for a twenty year period, I don't actually know the data, but it might be closer to like five percent or right, something it would like be. that. It would be. It's significantly higher, and, and in, for 10 years, it's even higher. Correct. And so you need to actually continually update. And the flip side's also true to a certain extent. So if you are, are someone who retires super early and you're in your 40s and you retire, you know, the 4% rule is based on a 30-year period. You might have 50 years. Typically what I see in financial plans is that the withdrawal that's possible for longer periods of time, usually like 40-plus years, is I would say about a half a percent lower than that four percent rule. So right. kind of what there gets happens. a point of like perpetuity where you say you know whether it's a hundred years, fifty. It's a big difference between ten and thirty, but there's not near as big a difference between thirty and forty year time horizon. Exactly. That, that's what I was going to say. But I time horizons matter. It, they matter a lot, and I, I think that's the the first thing that people need to be aware of is that you can't just blindly follow this four percent rule because it's based on a specific set of assumptions and your reality may not match the assumptions that this analysis was based on. In fact, it's likely not. It's more likely that it won't than it will. Right. And uh, what would the next one be then? So the next assumption in the analysis, which I didn't mention, is that he used a portfolio of 50% stocks and 50% bonds. And really the stock portion was only the standard and poorest 500, which is the largest 500 companies in the U.S. stock market. And then for the bond side, I think he used five-year treasury bonds. Well, that's a big assumption as well because the asset allocation of your portfolio is going to impact how much you can withdraw from your investment portfolio. So there's actually kind of two different levels to this. The first one is if you have a different ratio of stocks to bonds, and that's probably the biggest influencer. Now, what's kind of interesting is people might intuitively think that, okay, almost one for one if I increase the stock allocation in my portfolio, I can spend more because it's increasing the expected returns in my portfolio. Right. It really doesn't work that way because you're also increasing the uncertainty around the returns of your portfolio. But a slightly higher stock allocation can 
marginally increase the sustainable withdrawal for your investment portfolio. And that's on the front end. And what a lot of my research that I've done over the last year says where the big difference of that allocation spending comes and where it may make a lot of sense to choose an asset allocation beyond 50%, which might be a standard issue advice, 50-50 balanced portfolio, half in stocks, half in bonds, or fixed income, income producing securities, is if you, if you could use, or ideally, if you, you know, look, here's the number you can spend. When we do our research, it's based on the methodology, here's what you can spend today. But there's a really good chance that you'll be able to actually spend more than that because we're probably not going to end up with horrible. And what my research suggests is it can make a significant difference in spending over a lifetime or over the first half of your retirement lifetime, that allocation move. But as far as day one, whether you're 50% stocks is what you you mostly find or 60% or 70 or maybe sometimes even 80 Okay, it may instead of fifty thousand a year spending, it might be fifty thousand five hundred. It's not is no significance to it. But here's where it does matter, and this is the trap that I think retirees are more likely to fall into. Okay. Is a retiree who says, you know, I'm a conservative investor. And what they mean by that is almost their entire portfolio is in bonds. And usually if you look at what you can withdraw from a portfolio with a primarily bond allocation in your portfolio. It, it really steeply drops off once you drop below like 40 or 30% stocks. It really drops so off. So if you're below that and you start relying on this 4% rule because you read an article that says that's what you can do safely and not have to worry about it, you're really setting yourself up to potentially run out of money. Well, I think it's financial suicide on the installment plan. So unless you have so much money that you could put your money in treasury bills and you still couldn't spend the money, even even net of inflation, uh you know, that's the rare individual. So would it be fair to say then, and, 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 and we'll get back on track here, that generally you find for the majority of people, they're probably going to want to be somewhere between 40% stocks and 80? I think so. Beyond those limits, it kind of has its own problems. Right. And, and in future research, this is kind of aside from the 4% rule, but they've tested basically that sustainable withdrawal for various portfolio allocations. And I think really the 100% stock portfolio has the highest in kind of the median outcome uh, for spending. But the problem with that is if you have a 100% stock portfolio and you have a big smasher bear market, you have nowhere to run. You have nowhere to take your withdrawals from. Uh, right. And now you start. While the market's down. And so when, it, instead of uh, eating the eggs from the golden goose, you start eating the golden goose. Right. And that's the sequence of returns risk that we may talk about today, we may not, but it certainly comes into play here because the order of returns are probably more important than the return itself. Meanwhile, we do have a caller. We have Jim on line one. Jim, welcome to On the Money. Hey, thank you. I just tuned in and uh, I've had a question in my head for. Uh, a long time. I retired in 2008, and I was going to, I've listened to the 4% rule, and and I've been actually taking 4% out every year. But uh, I want to know, like, let's say, just to make the math easy, uh, someone gives you a million dollars to manage in 2008. Yes. Okay. And they decide in 2008 that they're going to take 4% out, which is 40000 a year. Yes. Okay. And they expect their financial advisor to uh, 
work the the stock market and the bond market to at least generate four percent. Okay, is that a realistic? So I'm going to Jim. I'm going to recap the question because we're not sure on Facebook Live if people heard the question. Jim oh. says, "Suppose you uh, you inherited a million dollars. It's it's tax free. You get to invest it, and it's 2008. You intend to use the four percent rule, spend forty thousand a year. I'll even take it further and adjust it by a few percent, two or three percent a year per year after that." with some reasonable expectation of a, a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, and Jim, correct me if I'm, if I'm not characterizing your question right, would that have worked? Is that what you're asking? No, no actually, okay. um, this is like you retired and you have, yes. uh, you have a portfolio of a million dollars, and you uh, turn that over to a financial advisor. Correct. And you want... To take forty percent or four percent right. out, which is forty thousand dollars every year, um, and you do that, and then after like ten years, uh, yep. this is now two thousand eighteen. Yes. If the financial advisor had uh, uh, managed your money and made four percent every year, okay, return, would he still have a million dollars or less than a million dollars? Uh, it could be a little bit different. Uh, I'm just thinking through that. I've actually done the research because we have a cert- we have rules that we follow, uh, and I also also compare it to the four percent rule. So I do historical audits, and and uh, it would have worked. The four percent rule would have worked with a few percent increase. Now uh, you're asked a different question. Uh, what if we earned exactly four percent a year? You should have preserved, assuming there's no fees involved. Right. Uh, and forget about taxes. It's just a, it's a tax-free portfolio. Uh, you should have preserved your million dollars. It's hard to, I think it's hard to admit in the 2008 to 2018 period. If, if you had 50% stock and you end up with uh, a fourfold increase in stock values, you're – Right. You're but, gonna, but I think what Jim's saying is forget what the mix is. Right, Jim? Yeah, you're right. Saying, I am. You, I'm just saying – God said you get 4% guaranteed return every year. Since 2008. Uh, well, then you would have, uh, you start the beginning of the year, you have a million dollars, you get 4% interest throughout the year, you have a million 40 at the end of the year, assuming you spend it at the end of the year. So there's a little quirk in there because if you be- take the 40 out at the beginning, you could have slightly less. Uh, but it's it's insignificant. But you well, would. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let's say after 10 years and you turned over and you. After ten years, you have nine nine hundred thousand instead of a million. So, does that mean that a either your fees uh, over that ten year period were uh, ten thousand dollars a year, or does that mean you weren't quite making four percent every year? You were making a little less than four percent on your money. So, assuming you're guaranteed four percent a year, that would have to mean that that differential is primarily. And primarily the fees. Okay. Okay. I think the, the main. You thing guys to reading that the same way I am? No. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, Fred. I mean, I think if if someone had turned over a million dollars to me in two thousand eight, I put half of it into stocks, half of it into bonds. Say the bonds just sort of held right, their right. own, which and is the, what and, they did. And the stocks uh, quadrupled. In, well, they went in up sixteen and a half percent a year in the broad U.S. market. I'm, I'm going to make four percent and have a lot of change left over. So I'm, I'm talking about a different. You, you are. I think Jim's saying he's his 
irrespective of the portfolio, the return right. has been 4% a year. Is that right, Jim? Well, and, and uh, yes, and uh, it's actually a two-old question. Uh, if, like Fred said, would you, if you did that, if someone did turn that million dollars over and they only took 4% a year, and would they have more than a million dollars uh, based on the performance of the stock market? Well, okay, so then it depends on your asset mix, but it's somewhere around a balanced portfolio. Let's yeah, uh, I've, I've done the work. Uh, okay. uh, I'm not sure that you would have preserved the full million in this case. You would have preserved your lifestyle uh, okay. if you didn't make any changes. Um, I think of things in the way we make changes. Once the plan becomes overvalued, the client can spend more money. So that's most of the research I'm doing. Okay. Um, I've actually seen updates to the 4% rule with Michael Kitz's, and all I know is the 4% rule since 2008 or 2009 has worked quite well with a balanced portfolio where you probably have close or more than you started with uh, using the 4% rule because you had a bond portfolio that probably earned a couple of percent a year, and you had a stock portfolio that earned 16.5% a year. Now, this is from the bottom, so you're talking about 2008. You went through the decline. Right. I would say that my expectations would you'd be pretty close to have preserved using the four percent rule a fifty fifty portfolio you would have you would have come somewhere close to preserving not not net of inflation nominally your original million dollars okay that's what that's the that's the answer I was trying to find out and uh, i I appreciate you walking me through it and i'm not i'm not i'm I'm guessing a little bit here this is what I do every day uh, David would probably laugh and say this is all dad does is he likes to do simulation and test all these things i live in a world of simulation uh so i'm pretty confident that what i'm stating is tr is going to be fairly accurate well and i'm trying to evaluate the the efficiency of my financial advisor and see if he you know uh well uh, one yeah. way to do it jim is uh visit with me sometime i promise you uh, you can talk to anybody who's ever dealt with us we don't push people to do we i don't want to push people to do business with me then i got to resell them every six months however since that's the world i live in right. it would take you and i about 15 minutes to come up with your exact answer okay okay well i thank you okay I appreciate the time hope it helps yeah. all right thanks all right david and fred sorry to uh you know i maybe facebook's not picking up the the question here so anybody listening yeah, we're having uh, some audio something. issues and it was just a, a, a kind of a historical audit question that, that jim had is if i filed the four percent rule in a balanced portfolio would i preserve my portfolio and my answer was you should have pretty much if not enhanced it preserved it some i was going to say i think it depends where you're measuring from if you're going from right exactly. before the, the crash and, and he said 2008 now i don't right know if that's it the it worst parts of 2008 difference. or january first i'm assuming january 1st you you would have been you would have probably preserved most if not all of your original million dollars using a four percent rule because jim didn't talk about spending an additional two or three percent a year to offset the impact of inflation let's get back to your article we have uh you know maybe uh 10 minutes or so left david for sure uh, what are some of the other issues with the four percent rule well i think we can talk about the second layer we kind of almost alluded to okay. this uh, dr gertz did a little bit but you know there, it's not just about stocks versus bonds. You also have to look at, okay, well, what types of stocks and bonds am I invested in? How diversified is my investment portfolio? Um, if you look at Bangin's research, like I said, he was only invested in basically the biggest companies in the U.S. stock market and five-year treasury bonds. Okay. That's not a very diversified portfolio. I mean, 500 sounds like a lot of companies, but they're all in the same asset class. Right. So 
if you diversify away from that, it can kind of smooth out some of the ups and downs of your portfolio to a certain degree. Right. It doesn't eliminate them by any means and can actually increase the sustainable withdrawal rate. And Bill Bangin actually updated his research a little bit later with basically the same methodology. But all he did was add small company stocks in the U.S. to the investment portfolio. And he found that that 4% safe withdrawal could be increased to 4.5%. So just adding that one asset class increased the safe withdrawal rate by a half a percent. Yeah, or call it even 12% additional spending, you know, from 4 to 4.5%. Four now, if you add in additional asset classes, like you start adding in international stocks and you add in some real estate or REITs, um, you add in additional bonds, it may marginally increase that as well. But you do get into diminishing returns pretty quickly as you start adding more and more asset classes to your portfolio. Sure, but it does so, have an impact. But it does have an impact. So that's something to be aware of. Most people do not just own the S&P 500 index and five-year treasury bonds. If you're a properly diversified investor, you should own a lot more asset classes than that. Okay, and what about uh, if it's so conservative out of the gate that we're assuming Armageddon and that's where the rule, that's where the spending comes from, that wait, we, have to, we have to assume that we're going to get those worst returns, then, then there's got to be a rub there. Right, so by definition, most of the scenarios are not going to be anywhere near the worst case scenario. So if you get even mediocre or even just average returns, you're going to be significantly underspending compared to what you could spend. In other words, if we knew you were going to get average returns, right. you could spend a heck of a lot more than 4%. Substantially more. But because you don't know that and we're banking on the worst case scenario, you're starting at 4%. So really, ideally, you would have some sort of methodology in, in place to increase your portfolio withdrawals if returns are above average. And so there needs to be a mechanism, and it, and it lacks that mechanism that says, wait a minute, we really don't want a system that if we're going off the cliff, we keep going off the cliff with it. We want to make adjustments, and the 4% rule doesn't have any adjustments, does it? Right, so it opens you up to two uh, scenarios that you really don't want, which is underspending and overspending. Now, the overspending, I think, is a, a relatively low likelihood, but there are people out there that say, you know, because of market valuations and because interest rates are low, maybe the 4% rule doesn't necessarily hold as well as it could have, you know, using past historical right. data. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But uh, just the fact that you're taking a fixed withdrawal opens you up to that possibility of overspending. Um, and like we already talked about, more than likely, you're going to end up significantly underspending if you follow the 4% rule. Because you're, you're living as if you're getting basically a 1929 through 58 market scenario. But most of the time, returns are a lot better than that. Right. And so they're, they're really, if you really want to live your complete life, there has to be a mechanism in place that basically what I call them guardrails that say, look, uh, we weren't expecting these good, this good of returns. Uh, therefore, we are overfunded. And therefore, here's how much more you can spend. And the other side of that is, Wow, we really did work walk into the buzzsaw the first few years, which basically key. The first three to five years are really important. And without making adjustments, you know, the, the fact is, if you look at most simulation, <coughs> you'll find that most financial advisors will come up with a success rate of if we do this a thousand times or ten thousand times, eighty-five percent of them exceeded the goals. Well, then fifteen percent of them ran it into zero. Well, it's not really going to be zero. 
uh, because you're going to do something. And this is the frustration I have with the financial services industry. They really can't describe what it is they would do and how it would impact you. And that's, of course, where our research has come in that really provides our clients with a lot better understanding of that. But it really misses that mechanism, doesn't it? For sure. And just to put a little perspective on it, they have actually analyzed kind of the various outcomes and percentiles of following a 4% rule. And basically what they found is 96% of the time, if you followed the 4% rule for 30-year periods in the past, you would have ended up with more money than you started with. Much more. Now, that's not adjusted for inflation, so it might actually spend like less than what you have. Right. But yeah, 96% of the time, you would have at least maintained your starting balance. Right. So that sounds like, I think a lot of people would hear that and say, well, so what? I'm a conservative person. I don't need to live a, a lavish lifestyle. I don't see what's wrong with underspending. But to me, that represents money that you could have, even if you're not going to use it on yourself, you could have given away while you're alive so that you get to see the positive impact that you're having on the people around you or the institutions that you care about, as opposed to leaving a giant lump sum when you when you die. Yeah. So it's look. There's a cost for everything. You don't really ever eliminate risk. You trade one risk off for another. And it's really, if, if, if the next part is what, what or do people do then? I'm, I'm going to preface it with, uh, you know, this, this is where a really good financial advisor will, will price things for you. Okay, I understand, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you're conservative investors. You probably can't even spend what we told you you can spend. Would you have any desire to leave uh, additional money to people you love or institutions you dearly love while you're alive or maybe when you wake up in heaven? And many times when they see that differential of being able to do what you just talked about, it's a good enough reason for them to instead of, to be, instead of being 40 or 50% equity to move out to 60 or 70% equity because it can have a significant impact in that area. But yeah. uh, go ahead. So what, what are you guys, you know, so what are people left with to do? So the 4% rule is kind of sort of useful, but not really practically useful. Well, yeah, it's useful if your scenario or your specific situation matches up well with the assumptions that went into Bangin's analysis. If you have about 30 years to live, you know, obviously you're guessing and you have about a 50-50 portfolio, that might be a reasonable place to start. Except, Dave, if you, Except if you use simulated data instead of historical, because we have limited historical data, and you assume that we could have periods, 30-year periods that are worse than we ever have, that opens you up to maybe a one out of six chance of actually running out of money of lifestyle prematurely. And that's not very good odds. That would, that would really bother me. So in an ideal world, what you would do is you'd come up with a starting withdrawal rate that accounts for your specific time horizon, obviously, again, an educated guess at how long you're going to live, and accounts for your specific asset allocation. And that's just the starting point. And then equally as important is you, you need some sort of process in place to adjust your portfolio withdrawals based on the returns that you actually earn. Instead of just assuming a worst-case scenario and never making an adjustment, you need to just basically you set a reasonable starting withdrawal rate and then you make adjustments based on the returns that you actually earn over your lifetime. And people should ask their advisor, what are those mechanisms? What are your withdrawal policy rules for making changes? And have you tested them under simulation to make sure that they are going to do ex what you expect them to do? Now, unfortunately, 99% of the advisors out there are going to be able to say, well, we don't know. 
but we have a pretty good idea yeah. of what we might do, you know, to make those changes. But we really have no real concept of what that means from a probability of your yeah. life. Yeah. I, I suspect, I don't know your client base, but I suspect that most of your clients aren't shooting for exiting with zero. They're, no. uh, they're uh, expected to have uh, something left. That gives you even more flexibility because you, you can always uh, draw on your uh, – what you expect to bequeath to your heirs exactly if things don't go right it's, it's not your problem it's your exactly it, and 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 all the commercial software that's available really the only difference is david said they really don't you know instead of a 40 percent stock port portfolio versus 80 percent, i'm going to a little bit extreme yeah. uh your your lifestyle at the beginning is not going to be all that much different but it may multiply the ending legacy value well not everybody wants to multiply that but as you picked up on, that really reflects potential additional enhanced lifestyle. Yeah. And we've been, we've been able to develop the tools that allow us to show the clients what that might mean to them in a practical sense. Right. So, but you're right. Nobody wants to go in, into a plan thinking I'm going to slide in with my last dollar. Some people acutely say they do, you know, you know, jokingly say they do, but they really don't because we need to have a margin for life. Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. If you knew exactly how long you were going to live and exactly what your investment returns were going to be in And the order year, of those returns. Then you could actually build a plan to do that. But the problem is we don't know that. So if you live longer than you anticipate or if returns are, are particularly bad, you might have planned on going you know, to zero on the, the year that you die or the day you die. But really, you go to zero five years before that. You obviously don't want that scenario. So, so Fred... Uh any updates on the – I guess there wouldn't be any updates on the state of Illinois. It's not as if things change uh, in the landscape from our structural no, problems. Other than there seems to be so. more and more articles showing that it's more and more – it's always – the next article is always it's worse than you, we even thought. Right. Is, is, what's well, your actually, sense of that? Uh, a little bit of uh, really good news. I guess Chicago's uh, bond rating went up a little bit and a few things like that. I think the uncertainty now is the election is uh, – you know, far from clear that uh, Governor Ronnie is going to be reelected. So there's always the issue about what comes next. But so. you're not really worried that even though Pritzker has said he tends to maybe try to go for a progressive and higher taxes for the wealthy, that from a mechanism standpoint, that's politically no. and mechanism wise, that's not all that easy to it's do. It's unlikely, right? So, so, so that I mean, that makes me feel a little better. Right. I, you know, maybe I'm one of those evil mm -hmm. people that doesn't want higher taxes, but right. Well, uh, yeah, that doesn't stop higher taxes, but probably the. Uh, Millionaires' tax is probably not not going to happen. So if there is a so so what you're saying or is this what you're saying is we may go from five percent to seven percent, but yeah. it's going to be across the board or if, if, or some uh, variation of that or some variation of that, not uh, not a twelve percent for uh, okay people over a million. Is that because we have to politically? Uh, not just political will, politically structure. Well, they have to have a, a constitutional amendment, which okay. is unlikely, and then you'd have to approve the legislation. And, and uh, like it or not, uh, high-income people have a, a pretty good uh, say in what <laughs> and, happens. And so when I when I hear him, and I'm not be, I'm being trying to be apolitical yeah. here, uh, but when I see this millionaire's tax on people like he says me and yeah. and yeah. Rauner. Uh, that's probably fairy tale. Yeah, Practice I don't think I, to be uh, to be fair. I don't think Rogers ever talked about the millionaires tax. He's talked about a um, very progressive uh, tax, which we don't have now. Okay, what's your take on uh, progressive versus the flat? Just we have thirty seconds. Is one better than the other? 
are more ideal? Uh, progressive, I think, is, is probably more appropriate for the federal level. Um, high rates of progression for states is counterproductive because it's, people have the option of uh, taking some uh, action to avoid that. Okay, so money moves where it's treated best yeah. from state to state, but you it's easier. That. You know, it's easier to move to from Illinois to. Uh, Indiana, this from Illinois to New Zealand. Okay. Well, another edition of Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the calls and thanks for the text. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign Urbana.